Hey, welcome to the Central Westland Church Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for downloading and thank you for listening. We hope that today you find God's Word to be encouraging, challenging, and inspiring your life today. We would love to connect with you through our Facebook page and Instagram page. All you got to do is look on Facebook or Instagram and search for Central Westland Church. Please know that we love you, we're praying for you, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. I am on. I don't know how to follow that, and it makes me think what you guys think about while I'm up here. Do I have a big head? Do I? <laughs> if I have a big head, let me know. Nice hair. Nice hair. I go back and forth on the hair. Uh, my grandma really likes the hair. She wants me to grow it out longer. I used to have a, a man bun. Some of you who knew me several years ago would know that I had a man bun. And then I cut it off. And now I'm at the point in time, my dad's sitting on the fourth row, so you know I may not, he don't like the long hair. I don't know what I want to do with it. I don't want to know. I don't know if I want to grow it back out. I don't know if I want to cut it back off. Because I really don't like where it's at right now. Like, this is not where I want it to be. I either want it to be shorter or I want it to be longer. And it takes time to get to the long, but it takes that to get to the short. So, my grandma really likes it. And I actually found that a lot of elderly women really like the man bun. Does that matter? Not really. But, one thing that was shocking was, uh, before the 830 service over there at Foster Street, I had an old, uh, not old, an elderly woman <laughs> call me over to her. And she was... Uh, she said, are you growing your hair back out? And she had a big smile on her face, and I thought she was like, like liking the man bun and stuff. And I was like, ah, I don't know. I haven't decided yet. And then she looks at me with a big old grin, and she says, you're too pretty to have a man bun. I was like, well, I know where you stand. It's foggy outside this morning. My gosh. If it's foggy and you have bad eyesight, it doesn't mix well. I bought a new car this year, and uh, it has this eyesight mode, and I don't, I've only used it twice, but you can, you can set your cruise, and it keeps you so far from the car in front of you, and you can, it, you can turn on a push a button, and it'll steer for you, and you can take your hands off the steering wheel, and it moves, and I, I did it, I've done it twice, and, and every now and then, it'll cut the eyesight off because it's too foggy, it's too rainy, or something like that. When my car cuts the eyesight off, I know I'm in trouble. Like if, if my car can't see, I probably can't see either. But uh, let's pray, and then we'll, I'll try to follow up what was just spoken up here, which was so beautiful. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the fog. Uh, we, can, we can find thanks in all things. Lord, I just pray that you would clear the hearts and minds of, of the people in this room, Lord, that um, distractions would, would be ridden. And that we would be able to hear your word, to learn from your word, to bring your word to life on, on my end. Lord, hide me behind your cross and, and may these people hear your word. Take it to heart, take it to life, and may it change their lives. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, I want to talk about everybody's favorite golfer this morning to open up. Juan. No, not Juan. Uh, Tiger Woods. Just got in a car accident. Man, bless that man. But I don't want to talk about the car accident. I want to actually talk about 
Tiger Woods' downfall, probably, arguably, the greatest golfer of all time. Arguably the greatest golfer of all time. If you look at statistics, Tiger Woods is arguably the greatest golfer of all time. If, he, if you don't put him as the greatest golfer of all time, you probably have Jack Nicklaus up there, which is also a very good argument to be made. Regardless, Tiger Woods is probably top three to top five greatest golfers of all time. And nobody can say otherwise. Like, you can have your opinion, but if your opinion is he's outside the top three, your opinion's wrong. Sorry. I don't make the rules. So let's talk about Tiger Woods' downfall. And then we'll talk about his success. November 2009. Claims of extramarital affairs. And not just one, but several come up. And then Tiger Woods claims that he is taking an indefinite break from golf. That's in November of 2009. Two months following that, in December of 2009 and January of 2010, he loses endorsement deals from four major, four major brands. I don't know the fourth, but three of them were AT&T, Gatorade, and General Motors. So he, he just gets called out. It gets made really public. 2009, I was... Uh, November 2009, I was 12 years old. <laughs> Sorry about it. But he loses his endorsement deals December 09, January 10. August 2010 comes around, his divorce becomes official. Then, three years later in March 2013, he actually regains the world number one rank. And in the May of that year, he wins the Players' tra- Championship uh, turn. He wins the Players' Championship round of golf. I got to get my golf terminology right. You wouldn't know that I played a year in high school, especially if you looked at me playing on the course. It's bad. Um, so that's in March 2013. He regains the world number one. Two years later, March 2015, it's the first time in his career, which started in 1996, that Tiger Woods drops out of the top 100 ranked golfers in the world. And then somewhere in between that time, he started meeting this new woman. And in March 2015, not only does he drop out of the top 100 golfers, but he splits up with this woman. I think the woman was with him because he was in the top 100. Then when he fell out, she was like, oh, you're not top 100 anymore. So we're done. Another year goes by. May, 2000 t- May 2016, Tiger Woods drops out of the top 500 golfers in the world. Top 500. He's not, even, he's not even talked about at this point. The man has taken a long break. Once arguably the greatest golfer of all time, now still very capable of playing with his age. Even today he's still capable, not after the car accident. You know, that may be it for him. I pray it's not, but it could be. He's still in age to where he can play and compete. We saw that in 2018 when he won the Masters again. 2016 drops out of the top 500 ranked golfers in the world. This is a guy who at two different times in his career was world number one ranked golfer for 264 consecutive weeks. Then there was a couple weeks break where he was not. Then again, 281 weeks. So that's what? A lot. That's a big number. Not quite 600. 500, I'm not doing the math. Either way, 264 consecutive weeks at world number one rank, then 281 consecutive weeks consecutive weeks at world number one rank. Eight, 82 tour victories, tied with Will Sneed 
Any golf fans out there? Will Sneed? Is that a golfer? Sam Sneed. Does he have 82 tour victories? Maybe not. I don't know. I think the guy's name was Will. Maybe I got the last name wrong. Either way, Tiger Woods has, is tied for the most tour victories of any other professional golfer. Now, he's only three majors behind Jack Nicholas in major wins. Jack Nicholas has 18 as of 2018. I think it was 2018 when he won the Masters again. Tiger Woods has 15. So he's in second place by three. So he's tied for the most tour victories, second place for most major wins, uh, and he is the lowest career scoring average in PGA Tour history. He is the single player that has the lowest career scoring average. And I looked him up yesterday, and his scoring average right now is 72.4, which is par, or actually right above par, which really isn't that good if you're a professional golfer. Like, in 2021, if you're shooting par as a professional golfer, you're not making some cuts, which is fine. I can't shoot par. I wish I could shoot par. So if you go backwards, in November 2009, Tiger Woods' life fell apart. And from 2009 to about 2017, what's that, eight years? During this whole eight years, except for in 2013 when he regained world number one and won the Players' Championship match, except for that little blip, Tiger Woods' life fell apart. And like Tiger, our lives sometimes fall apart too. This could look like a loss of a loved one, a divorce getting fired from a job, going through hard times with your kids, not being financially stable like you may have once been before. There are a ton of scenarios we could go through when discussing someone's life fall apart, too many to cover. So I want to take a look at Scripture and see what we do when our life falls apart. What do you do when your life falls apart? And to look at that, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Psalm 3, and I'll give you a couple minutes to get there. But this is the psalm entitled, Save Me, O My God. And this is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And we'll talk about that in just a minute after I read it, but I want to read Psalm 3 first. Psalm 3 reads this in the ESV. I think it'll be on the screen. There we have it. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying, O my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on your people. Amen to that. And so like I said, to understand Psalm 3 we must first understand why David was fleeing from his son Absalom. And at this point in time in David's life, David's life was falling apart. 
and you can read the story. The story takes place from 2 Samuel chapter 13 to about 2 Samuel chapter 17. But during those four chapters, five chapters, David's life is falling apart. You, you find him, you find him in an affair with Bathsheba. I think that's in chapter 13. It's right there. And then, all of a sudden, he has a daughter. And his daughter gets raped by one of his other sons from a different woman. Then, another son, who is Tamar's brother, then kills the brother, Amnon, who raped the sister. Then, Absalom decides to flee. So, all within a matter of, of three chapters, you have David caught in an affair, his daughter's raped, his son is killed, his other son flees. Four big things that I would constitute pretty well as somebody's life falling apart. David's life fell apart. And this was the, the climax of the story. And then Absalom then comes back. Finally, Absalom, through, through Joab, ends up being able to come back to Jerusalem after fleeing. But when Absalom finally gets back, he, he's not allowed to see his dad for two years. David's like, no, I don't want to see you. So, so David shuns him. He's allowed to come back to Jerusalem, but David shuns him. So he doesn't get to see his dad. He doesn't get to see the king for two years. And, Ab, and during those two years, Absalom's bitterness toward his dad grows, and he creates a following of, of Israelites. It's called Absalom's conspiracy. He would wait out at the gate. Israelites would come up, and they would, they would want to see the king. They would want to... Uh, settle a dispute between, uh, between them and another person, and, and Absalom would stop him. And he would say, oh, like, oh, if the king had time to see you, if he had time to see everybody, then, then all would be well. But he would say, like, they, he doesn't have the time. So Absalom would stop them before they got to the king, right? And then, and then he, would, he would try to settle the, the dispute for them. And so he was gaining the hearts of Israelites, he was gaining the hearts of the men of Israel. That's what it says. He was gaining the hearts of the men of Israel. And it said that Absalom, Absalom may be one of the best looking dudes in the Bible. It said there was not a blemish on him from, from sole of the foot to the crown of the head. There was not a blemish on him. Absalom may be one of the best looking dudes in the Bible. So whether it's Israelite men or not, and, and women too, like if they wanted to settle a dispute, then they were going to like Absalom. He was there. He was trying to settle the dispute. He would stop them before they could get to the king. So he conspired. And he grew, this, he grew this following within Israel. This following who was supposed to be following his dad. But they, he turned their hearts to start following him. And so then, he says, I'm going to go kill my dad. I'm going to go take over Israel. Word gets to David. And David has to flee. David has to get out of there because David knows if him and his following get to him while he's in his castle, they don't stand a chance. David's going to die. So David flees. And get this, on his way out of town, keep in mind, keep in mind, this is just after he's caught in an affair, his daughter gets raped, his son dies, his other son flees, his son comes back two years later, his son's mad at him because he's not allowed to see him for two years, and now all of a sudden, his son that he didn't allow to see him for two years, who killed his other son, but that son raped his daughter, so no, it's not justified, but still, like this dude's life falling apart, now all of a sudden that son wants to kill him. 
So he's like, I got to get out of here. On top of that, on his way from fleeing from Jerusalem, David flees from Jerusalem. There's this guy named Shema. I think that's how you pronounce it. Pew, how do you pronounce it? Shema. 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 This guy. Shema is, is kin to Saul. Shema is kin to Saul. Saul was the king before David was the king. So on his way out of Jerusalem, Shema comes out of his little hut. Big bad guy. David's fleeing with all his mighty men. So David has people around him. And Shema starts cursing at him and throwing stones at him. He's still the king. He's still the king. But Shema is like, you, you're, this is what you deserve. Tossing rock, this is what you deserve. I hate you. You're worthless. I hope he kills you. Your son's better than you. He's throwing stones, cursing him, insulting him along the way, on top of all the stuff that just happened to him. The mighty men, of course, are like, do you want us to stop this guy? And he's like, nah, let him do it. Maybe this is what I deserve. He says, if God's laying on his heart for him to do this, then let him do it. Who am I to stop this guy from, if God's laying on his heart to throw rocks at me, I'm not going to stop him. So there's where we get. And Psalm 3 is considered a morning psalm. So, so they had to get across the Jordan. They camped out across the Jordan. And then they woke up in the morning. And all of a sudden there was this big fight that took place. But uh, we won't get to that. You know, David wins and all this stuff. All, all is good. But in the meantime, while he's fleeing, they get across the Jordan. He goes to sleep. He wakes up. He writes this psalm. And so what do we do when life falls apart? Well, David decided to write a psalm. David's own son is chasing him, trying to kill him. He's just been caught in an affair. A son dies, a daughter gets raped, a son's chasing him, trying to kill him. And David decides to write a psalm. He participated in an act of worship. And like David, when our life begins to fall apart, we ought to participate in an act of of worship. Romans 12.1 I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. When our life falls apart, we continue to worship God through sacrificing our life to Him to becoming obedient what does that look like well becoming obedient is very obvious we know what obedience is all of us well most of us in this room look to be parents or maybe parents at one point in time maybe now we're grandparents like you at some point in time have ordered your kids to do something and even if you're the kid in the room you've been ordered to do something so you know what obedience looks like and so that is spiritual worship is being obedient to the lord but Worship is also singing, singing out to God. David wrote a song when he was being chased by his own son, life falling apart. David writes a psalm. Singing is a part of worship. Being content with our lives is a part of worship. Loving God, even in the suck of life, is a part of worship. And God can handle your anger. I'm not saying that you can't be angry, but if your anger isn't backed up by love, then you've got something off. You become obedient 
and continue to trust in God. Even if we live this way our entire lives, even if we live a, a Romans 12 one life where we submit our bodies, where we submit our lives in spiritual worship, even if we live this way for our entire lives, life falling apart can still happen because Satan still attacks. So just because you live a Romans 12 one life and you, and you submit to everything that God says does not mean that hard times aren't going to come. But even when those times come, we're still supposed to worship in the time. So when life falls apart, continue to worship. Because God is worthy of our praise even in the valleys. Even in the valleys, like David, when your son is chasing you, trying to kill you, even in those valleys, God is worthy of being praised. This is, this is David again, 2 Samuel 22, verse 4. This is David's song of deliverance. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be saved, and then I am saved from my enemies. I call upon the Lord while I'm in the valley, while I'm in the suck of life. Right? While I'm there, I call upon the Lord. I continue to worship Him anyways because He's worthy of being worshipped and then I'm saved from my enemies. Because God is good all the time and all the time. He is working to dig you out of that pit. And either you've put yourself in it or someone has thrown you in it. But He is still working to dig you out of the pit. God is working for you to dig you out of the pit. Did David put himself in this situation? Maybe. Was David thrown into the situation? Maybe. David distanced himself from his son for two years. Now, is it warranted that his son come back and try to take his life? No. In their times, it's a little bit different. Still not okay. But when you, when you push your son away for two years, like you got to experience some repercussions. Just like Absalom had to experience repercussions when he killed his other brother. Like there's repercussions either way. But God is working to dig you out of the pit, whether you've put yourself there or somebody has thrown you in it themselves. And if you choose not to worship, you could stay in the valley even longer. If you choose not to worship, you could stay in the valley even longer. I want to look at Romans 1.21. It says... For although they knew God, talking about the unrighteous, he's talking about unrighteous people in this um, example. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They thought they had it figured out. Even in the valley, they thought they could find their way out of the valley on their own. And so God gave them over into darkening their hearts on their own because we have to participate participate in worshiping God even when life falls apart there's not much purpose in bringing someone out of the valley if they haven't learned their lesson yet if there's a lesson in a valley that's supposed to be learned and you haven't learned it yet what's the purpose in coming out of the valley what's the purpose in God bringing you out of that valley if the lesson to be learned has not been learned yet there is no purpose so will you not stay in the valley longer? He wants you to learn a lesson. And maybe it's somebody else has thrown you in that pit 
Even when somebody else throws you in a pit, there's still a lesson to be learned. So we continue to worship even in those times. And then we come to verse 3, Psalm 3. What do you do when life falls apart? David shifts his focus from the problem to the solution. So we should shift our focus from the problem to the solution. Verse 3 says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. He goes from talking about all the enemies, all the foes around him, all the many that are rising up around him, and then all of a sudden he says, But you, O Lord, are a shield around me. The focus shifts from the enemies to God. When your life falls apart, focus on God, not the valley. 2 Corinthians 6, 8-10. through 10. This is scripture about how you focus on the way your life is going. We are treated as impostors and yet are true. As unknown and yet well known. As dying and yet not killed. As sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As poor yet making many rich. As having nothing yet possessing everything. There's a focus shift there from the problem to the solution. You're not an imposter. You're true. You're not unknown. You're well-known. You're not poor. You're actually making others rich, which is better than making yourself rich because there's, there's satisfaction in making others rich, not, not monetarily, not financially, rich in spirit. Sometimes when you focus on something so long, it can turn into tunnel vision. So if you're, if you're sitting in a valley... And all you're focusing on is the problem. If all, if all David was focusing on was Absalom, he would have never wrote the psalm. The psalm would have been verses 1 and 2, only talking about his foes and how his enemies are rising up around him. That's all the psalm would have been. But no, David shifts his focus from his problem to a solution. And his solution is God. So we must shift our focus. And if you focus so sternly on the opinion of one person you're going to begin to think like that person rather than thinking like the crowd. So if you're in a group of people and there's a problem and there's one other person in the group that's really negative about the problem and all you focus on is the negativity of the one person, that problem's going to turn negative to you too. But if there's four outside of the one who's negative, who's positive, you focus on the fours. Or you at least ask their opinion And it probably makes sense. If there's four agreeing and one's negative, I'm going to say this one is the outlier. Plus, we want to focus on God and we want to focus on the solution more than we want to focus on the problem anyways. So focus on the good, not the bad. Shifting the focus makes you more aware of the love of God. I found this quote when I was doing my sermon, but I did not attribute it to anybody but I didn't feel good enough to take it for my own because I thought it was really good. It says, when you fix your thoughts on God, God fixes your thoughts. When you fix your thoughts on God, God fixes your thoughts. It reveals to you when you shift your focus on God and not your problem, it reveals to you 
how he may be working to bring you out of the valley. And when you see somebody working to bring you out of a valley, it shows you how much they love you. Whenever you're, you're not financially stable and somebody comes alongside you and helps you out, does that not prove how much that person loves you? Whenever you have a, a strained relationship with somebody and there's a third party that comes in and gives you some advice because they've been there, does that advice giver not show you that they love you by giving you that advice? When you fix your thoughts on God, God fixes your thoughts. In crying to God, which David does, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Crying to God tells him, you know, he's the solution. Just look at the history of Israel. Many times they dig themselves a pit by becoming obedient, by following other gods of other nations. And yet, whenever they get tired of being oppressed and opposed, and whenever they're, they're tired of, of being slaves to other nations, they cry out to God. And He answers them. And He delivers them. When you have a problem, you look for a solution. When you have a problem, you look for a solution. Everybody does. So, if you're looking to God, it shows that you're looking at Him for the solution. That lets Him know that you know He's the solution. If you cry out to God, that means you're looking for the solution, and He knows that you know He's the solution. He knows you know He's the solution. Does that make sense? Good. No one believes the solution is just going to come along. You have to be looking. The solution isn't going to find you. You have to find a solution. So you have to look for God. You have to cry to God. Point number three, when life falls apart, David stresses the fact that it's God's victory. It's God's victory, not ours. Verse eight, salvation belongs to you, O Lord. Salvation belongs to you. I did not save myself from my son Absalom who was trying to kill me. You did. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory is given to us. We don't obtain the victory. We don't deserve the victory. We don't earn the victory. The victory is given to us. It's not our victory. It's God's. And that helps us because we know that the pressure of victory is not on us. And that, that's a pressure that can sometimes weigh you down. When you find yourself down in a valley and you're trying to come out of that valley, because I'm not going to lie, sometimes we get down in that valley and we look real bad. We look real bad to the people around us. So we want to try to find a way out. And so there's a pressure there to find a way out of the valley. But guess what? The pressure isn't on you. You have a lion that Jern talked about earlier. You have a lion who's willing to fight your enemies for you. Know that the pressure of victory is not on you. Deuteronomy 3.22 You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. It is the Lord your God who fights for you. In the valley, God is the one fighting for you. Even if you're, even if you're digging the hole deeper than the hole normally is, God can bring you out of a valley quicker than you can dig further into a valley. Psalm 23.5 You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. How does that make any sense? 
How, how is there a table prepared, prepared for us in the presence of our enemies? Because God is fighting our battles for us. While we're sitting there feasting on whatever it is that God is preparing for us in the presence of our enemies, we don't have to worry about the victory because God is fighting the battle for us. We can sit there and eat grapes. Boom. I love grapes. I never eat them, but I love them. Because there's a certain pressure you feel when you really need a win, but it's God's win. So you stand back and continue worshiping, letting him know that you love him, crying out to him, and you let him do his thing. Because God wants to save you from your enemies. God wants to save you from your life falling apart. Once again, look at the history of Israel. The, the Israelites consistently, persistently dug themselves a hole, found themselves being oppressed by other nations, following their gods and worshiping their gods. They consistently dug themselves a hole. But every time they cried out, every time it doesn't fail, God delivered them, whether it was through judges, whether it was through Moses, whether it was bringing them out of Egypt, whether it was through kings, through the monarchy, which we finally get to, which is, which is what David is, right? He's the king. Every time Israel cries out, God delivers them because God wants to save you. When your life is falling apart, you can rest on the fact that God wants to save you from your enemies. He prepares a table for you in their presence. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Remember that verse next time you get into a valley. Jeremiah 29, 11. Romans 8, 28. Everybody knows that one. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. God wants to save you from your enemies. So what do you do when life falls apart? Band, you can come on up. You choose to worship God anyways. You focus on the solution rather than the circumstance. And know that God wants to save you. And this whole message, some of you in this room, I'm sure, are going to think, you're preaching the prosperity gospel. No, I'm not. I'm preaching the gospel because God wants to save you he does if you look throughout scripture God wants to save you he delivers the Israelites every single time he sent his son to die for you when you find yourself in a valley when you find yourself as though life is falling apart God wants to save you and that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to make you prosper that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to make you prosper but he's going to bring you back on level ground he's going to get you out of that hole because he works all things for the good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose that's scripture God wants to save you Heavenly Father thank you so much that we can find rest and peace in knowing that you want to save us knowing that the pressure of victory is not on us God but it's you who wants to save us and we can rest in that and so Lord I pray for those who may be, may be in a valley right now for those who may think that their life is falling apart God may they worship you may they worship you in the valley may they, may they cry out to you to save them God because yes you do want to save us but God we gotta cry out we gotta worship 
got to be obedient. We got to love you. So God, help us love you better. Help us know that the victory is yours, that it's not ours. Lord, that when we think the victory is ours, you're going to humble us. But Lord, you want to save us. And for that, 